Amen. So imagine with me that you're at work tomorrow and a colleague comes and asks you a question. And maybe you've not gone into work, maybe you're working from home and it's before an online meeting and it's just a little moment uh, when you just happen to be with somebody else waiting for others to come uh, and somebody fills the silence with a question. Or, or it could be you're not at work, you just bump into someone and you have a casual chat and they say to you, what did you do at the weekend? And you say, well, I did various things, but one of the things I did is I went to church. And they say, oh, that's very interesting. What does church do? What does a church do? What would you say? Uh, Look with me at this passage, Galatians chapter 6. It begins by saying, brothers and sisters, which tells us immediately that we are dealing with the business of family. Uh, At this point, as Paul writes to these churches in Galatia, he is instructing them on how they should be a family together. Uh, What is it that characterizes a family? Uh, In my family, we have um, some rules, some family rules, uh, like uh, you don't buy bread, um, like you always have a roast dinner on a Sunday, apart from when it's church lunch day, which it is today, so we won't have a roast dinner. Um, Important rules, in fact, most of our rules are to do with food, uh, which tells you something about what characterizes us as a family. Uh, But what about a church family? What are the activities that should feature in a church family? Now, these verses we're looking at, I think, touch upon four behaviours that should feature in a church. Uh, Four ways to answer the question, what a church does, or perhaps what a church should do. That will be the challenge for us. Um, However, we're we're jumping in at the end of the letter. Um, A lot of water has gone under the bridge. Uh, There's not really a clean break between this passage and what happened uh, last time. Uh, And it it seems to me that the great declaration of this letter is summed up in the wonderful word, freedom. Freedom. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, it is for freedom Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Uh, And Paul has been working parachute. It's not self-created illusions. It's not a brief rush of endorphins. Uh, before a devastating splat on the ground. Freedom is, as Paul describes it, it is the removal of every barrier to your eternal happiness. And in the book of Galatians, what happens? And we've seen it as we've come through. Uh, as it, uh, it's, it's almost as though the Son of God himself puts his hands on your shoulders and he looks you straight in the eye and he holds your gaze. And then he says to you, It is for your freedom. All of it. He says, all my wounds, all the horror of the cross, all that agony that I endured like nothing since the creation of the world, all of that, my soul crushed under the curse of God, a curse called out by your sin, all of that that I went through, it was all for your freedom. He holds your gaze, the Son of God himself, looking you in the eye. He says, I have removed every barrier to your eternal happiness. You don't need to hope that you can do enough. He says, you don't 
Hope you can do enough because I, Jesus Christ, have done it all for you. You haven't got to find some special deed to manufacture your entrance into glory. But I myself have opened the door. I've opened it wide and I've opened it for you. It is for your freedom that I have set you free. And so for the Galatians and for us, the message is stop relying on yourself. You don't need to be yoked to that kind of slavery, the kind of slavery where you work and you sweat and you strive and you toil and it's all for nothing. No, he says, stand firm in your freedom. You are called to be free. Our last time we saw 5.13, he says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. You are freed. Yes, you are freed. What for? You are free to love. That's what he says. Free to love purely for the benefit of the other person. You're not to, to love other people as some way to kind of gain favour for yourself. No, we, we have all the favour from God in Christ. We don't need to earn that. We don't need to work to it. We are freed now to go and love freely. And Galatians 5.14 says that this is the kind of love that all God's instructions aim at. The whole of the law of God is fulfilled in the one command it says, love your neighbour as yourself. Our passage today takes that thought forward. You see in verse 2, in verse 2 of our passage it says, in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul now calls it the law of Christ because we can't do it without Christ is what he freed us for. Earlier in the letter in chapter 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now the law of Christ tells us that when we are called to love others, we're not being told to go and get on with it by ourselves. Christ has given himself to enable us to grow into this kind of love. We saw last time that, that this love is the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit who lives in us because we belong to Christ. The command to love is called the law of Christ because we grow in our obedience to it as we look to Christ. You're free to love, to love in Christ, to love like Christ, to love empowered by Christ. That's what the Spirit works in us. And it's not a game. Our passage today will say in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. We'll bring that into sharper focus as we work. It rings out as a wake-up call to our sluggish hearts. In fact, verse 7 and 8 remind us that there is a war that is raging. We saw this last time. We saw how on one side there is the flesh Uh, Paul calls it the present evil age. On the other side is the spirit. There is this coming age of promise, the eternal bliss of a new creation. And Paul says, as we saw last time, that the forces are in conflict. The promised future has broken into today. Uh, The spirit has, has begun a new creation in the midst of the old. There is a rebellion underfoot, a revolution underfoot. And the front line of the battle is being fought in the heart of every believer. God is not mocked. The saving work of Christ is is not something to be treated lightly. Verse 8 of our passage says, If we sow to the flesh, we reap destruction. If we sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. 
just as uh, Maximus said in the film Gladiator, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Verse 8 says, what we sow, our deeds, our actions, the, the direction of our life will reap our eternity. It will be destruction or eternal life. That the way that we live today matters. God is not mocked. What we do matters. Our works are necessary for our eternity. Hear me right on this. Our works do not earn our eternity. Christ does that. But how we live shows the evidence of the saving work that has happened in us. When Paul says, sow to the Spirit, you can't sow to the Spirit unless you have the Spirit. And he said already that it's only the children of God redeemed by the work of Christ who have the Spirit. And so sow to the Spirit. Which brings us back to verse 1 of our passage. Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Paul is going to take the love command and he wants to wrestle it into the doing of the church. He wants to show ways that the love command is to be worked and sown in the family of the church. So what does a church do? Four things. Here's the first one. Restoring the fallen. Right there in verse 1, isn't it? Look with me. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. In the church family, there is the expectation that people will get caught in sin. Now, dare we be sinners in this place? If someone is caught in a sin, would you know that? Would you know if someone was caught in a sin? Or would you know if a, if a brother or sister was watching pornography? Or, or if they were addicted to gossip or harboring resentment? Failing to forgive or being harsh to their children or lying to their work colleagues or, or drinking too much. Now, would you know that? See, but before we even get to the instruction of the verse, we are met by the assumption of the verse. And the assumption is when someone is caught in a sin, others will know about it. Now, that assumption puts a brick through any ideas that church relationships can be casual. It dismantles any thought that we can keep each other at a comfortable distance so no one gets close enough to see what's really going on. Of course, the best way to know if someone is caught in a sin is when they say to you, I'm caught in a sin, isn't it? And we should do that. We should confess our sin to one another. Uh, Ray Ortland says, uh, you can be impressive or you can be known. You can't be both. We can put up a facade of togetherness. We can, we can pretend like everything's fine and never let anybody in. We can look, try to look impressive or we can be known. We can be close. We can be real. But we can't be both. Now, sometimes, though, we are so, so caught up in a sin that we haven't admitted it to ourselves and we need others to help us see that and to help us gently. It's an important qualification, isn't it, there? Now, we are to do this Gently. And literally it says, in a spirit of gentleness, which is so helpful because we've just been told in chapter 523, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. It's something we seek his help with, to be gentle. But what is the instruction? It says, in this situation, when someone is caught in a sin, 
You are to restore that person. And the way Paul indicates this is he's describing it as a process. You are to engage in that, that process of bringing about restoration. It's a gentle thing. It's a careful thing. And the second qualification he adds, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Now, to move towards someone in their sin is dangerous territory. Our sinful nature attracts to sin like moth to a light. Now, when we move towards others in their sin, we must always remember that we ourselves are sinners and liable to sin. Now, today, it might be us going to help someone else, but tomorrow will be them coming to help us. And, and, and as we remember that, we, we have to keep reminding ourselves that our sins don't define us. Now, the one caught and the one who is restoring have the same status before the Lord, and the status is freedom, children of the living God. And so restore that person. How how do you go about that? How do you go about that kind of restoration? Sin loves darkness. It wants to stay there. Loves to hide away. It loves to take us away from others. Loves to make us withdraw from other people. And so the work of restoration begins with shining a little light. If the sin is not recognized, we, we shine a little light as we gently ask and, and, and as we gently ask we're just trying to call a spade a spade now we want to gently look at all the surrounding circumstances we want to identify all of the hard things that are going on but as we do it we gently shine the light and say and in all of this there is a sin and we call it a sin and we recognize that it has caught you we want to shine a little light and then we want to point to a lot of christ Galatians 1.4 says, Christ gave himself for our sins. So when we identify any sin that we are caught in, we can say Christ gave himself for that sin. It could be a sin that, that has sunk its claws in deep, but we remind each other with great boldness that it is for that sin. It may be your worst sin. It may be a sin that causes you to shudder with shame, but we say for that sin, Jesus bled to wash it away. And we say, trust the lamb who was slain for you. We may want to say that sin, it is inexcusable. And that sin has the power to damn you to hell, but Jesus Christ has taken the curse. You are not going to go to hell for that sin. There is now no condemnation. God has sent his son to redeem you. He's paid the price. He's paid it in full. It is done. And it might take months to say that. And we'll need to keep saying it to one another again and again because the process of restoration can be very long. But all the time we're saying, don't serve the flesh, but sow to the spirit. This is what the church should do. And, and you may be sitting here this morning thinking, thank goodness that's not for me. Whew. I'm glad I'll never have to do that. I, I never could do that. Brothers and sisters, God cannot be mocked. Look at verse 1. Who is to do this? It says, you who live by the Spirit. Not a special category of Christian, not a kind of trained pastoral care team. Those who live by the Spirit is every believer. If you are a Christian, you live by the Spirit. 
Paul just said that a couple of verses before, chapter 5, 25. Since you live by the Spirit, the job of restoring the fallen is everyone's job. And everyone is qualified for this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany in the Second World War, eventually executed by the Nazis. But he explains why it is every Christian's job to do this. This is what he says. He said, the most advanced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are. That's great and helpful. But it does not know the godlessness of men. And so it does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother or sister, I can dare to be a sinner. That's why we can help one another. What should the church do? Restore the fallen. Secondly, We should bear one another's burdens. That's verse 2, isn't it? You see there? Carry each other's burdens. Now again, note that before we get to the instruction, the verse has an assumption. Here's the assumption of the verse. Christians have burdens. Christians, we carry around oppressive experiences. When someone becomes a Christian, it doesn't deliver us from the burdens of life. We still go on getting sick. We We have bodies that wear out, we suffer losses, we have backstories that shape our today in all kinds of peculiar ways. People are unkind to us, we struggle with loneliness, we get down. We carry our experiences like a burden. And what does love command us to do? Carry each other's burdens. What does that mean? It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Carry each other's burdens. What does it mean to carry someone else's burden? We'll look at verse 2. This is an instruction directly connected to the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. There's something about carrying someone else's burden that especially applies the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? It's the law of love, summarized in Galatians 5.14, as love your neighbor as yourself. I think that really helps us. Uh, We carry each other's burdens when we treat their burdens as our own. You see, if I have a splitting headache, I cannot forget it, and I keep praying about it, and I seek to alleviate the discomfort with medicine and rest, because I love myself. And that seems to me to be how we carry each other's burdens. We own their burdens as if they were ours. And so we pray as if it were our trouble, and we weep as if it were our sorrow, And we seek to provide practical helps and cares as we would for our own bodies. And so in the church family, we need to open our eyes and we need to look and see the burdens that others are carrying. And when we see the burdens, the first thing we do is get on our knees and pray. And we pray that we'd have a right sense of owning that burden. And it's from that place uh, we seek ways to help. It's messy business, though carry each other's burdens. It sounds lovely, but in practice, it's very tricky. And Paul puts in some qualifications here. In verse 3, he says, 
If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Paul is telling us that the enemy to burden bearing is pride. Verse 3 tells us to guard against the idea that as we bear someone else's burden, it makes us somehow better than them. And that is so tempting for us. So tempting for us to, to, to measure a person's worth according to the struggle they have in life. We think less of the weak and more of the strong. And when someone else's weakness gives us the illusion of strength, we think we have some betterness. And Paul reminds us, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. We are not something. No, no, as believers, Paul has already said, we died with Christ. And we no longer live. But Christ lives in us. All that we have is Christ. You know, one of the sure ways that we get this wrong is when we find ourselves getting cross about the burdens of others. When, when, when the burden of somebody else makes us think, how could they be so stupid? And what have they got themselves into that mess again? Can't they just learn their lesson? Why can't they get on and manage like the rest of us? When we have those kind of thoughts, we are slipping into thinking that we are something when we are not. Verses 4 and 5 tell us to guard against making comparisons. Paul is saying you test your own actions. Don't play what you do against what somebody else does. Verse 5, for each one should carry their own load. He's saying each one is going to stand before the Lord and answer for what you have done, not for what your neighbor has done. Or hasn't done. Now God has given each of us different resources, different capabilities, different opportunities. Now we have different resources. Now when it comes to carrying each other's burdens, we each are to use what the Lord has given us, not what the Lord has given the next person. Carry each other's burdens. It will look different from each person to each person, but we are all to be in on this. And, and it's a two-sided instruction, isn't it? Uh, To carry another's burden, we must see it, we must know it, we must take time to understand it. Well, the other side of that is that we must share our burdens. Uh, So often we end up thinking, oh, but I I wouldn't want to be a burden. Want to be a burden. What do we mean when we think that? I wouldn't want to be a burden. Do we think that somehow we ought to be able to cope without the help of others? Isn't that a kind of pride? God cannot be mocked. If we hold back from sharing our burdens with another, we are refusing this command and we are denying others the honor of coming alongside. So what should the church do? We should restore the fallen and bear one another's burdens. Third thing, what should the church do? Prize Bible teaching. Look at verse 6. Nevertheless, I've no idea why it says nevertheless. You'll probably scrub that out of your Bibles, that'll be fine. Um, The one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Uh, Sharing all good things means material goods. The the idea is that those who, who are taught the word pay the one who teaches, so that the teacher is able to give their time to study and to pray and to prepare. Uh, and then not to be concerned about 
other employment. The principle there in verse 6 is that the church family is to invest its material resources in Bible teachers. That's exactly what we do at Kingfisher Church, isn't it? Kingfisher Church, we, 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 we give our money, we pull our money together, and we use our money to release me and to release Paul so we can devote our working time to the ministry of the word and prayer. That's what we do. Now, you who receive instruction in the word, share all good things with your instructor. When I came to Kingfisher, um, I first preached here in August 2014, um, and I said, I've got notes on it, uh, I spoke about confidence in the word of God, and I said this, I said, I don't know what your expectations are, me, are, are of me at Kingfisher, but as I begin, I want to be clear that my intention is to declare to you what God has spoken, what he has set before you in his word in the Bible, which is God's word to us. I don't want to add to it, take from it, or soften it to suit personal tastes and preferences Here at Kingfisher, I plan to preach the word. That's what you called me to do. That's what I'm here for. It's crucially important. It was crucially important for the churches in Galatia. When Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, he starts off by saying, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul knows if they turn to another gospel, it's not gospel, it's not good news. Any message other than the message of Christ and Christ crucified will not save them from their sins. So it was so important they had people to carefully teach them the word so that they would keep believing what is true and recognize what was wrong. Our times in many ways are different from those times. But the attack on the church has always been an attack on the word of God. Right back in the Garden of Eden, the serpent hissed, did God really say? And when the Satan uh, tempted the Lord Jesus in the wilderness, he hissed the same, did God really say? And the body of Christ goes as he has gone. The devilish attacks on the church are always some variation on that hiss, did God really say? It's worth noting, I think, as we look at this, that what we're working through is a, is a kind of application, a description of keeping in step with the Spirit. And so we see that life in the Spirit treasures the ministry of the Word. Uh, Nikki, my wife, many years ago spoke to a church leader who, who said to her something on the lines of this. He said, there are two tracks. There is the Word and the Spirit. And he said, in my church, we've moved from the Word to the Spirit. I don't know what spirit he referred to, um, because it certainly wasn't the spirit of God. Whenever there is a division driven between the work of the spirit and the word of God, you can be sure it has little to do with the spirit of God. But for us, it's important to ask, how does this prizing of Bible teaching fit with the command to love? Well, verse 7 follows verse 6. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. When when the Lord Jesus sent out the church, he said to his disciples, go and teach them. When, When the spirit descended at Pentecost and God's empowering presence filled the church, the new believers devoted themselves to the teaching. You see, 
It has always been the case that the word of God brings the life of the Son of God to the people of God through the Spirit of God. And Paul is saying to the church, prize Bible teaching because that's what God has given to grow the life of God in you. That's how you can be sowing to the Spirit as you hear and believe the word of God. And he says, God cannot be mocked. See, when... when When you share material things with your Bible teacher, Paul Paul isn't saying that's where it ends. He's he's, he's telling them how important it is to be glued to the teaching of the Bible. And God is not mocked. Now, God would be mocked if his ways were dismissed. He'd be mocked if his ways were rejected out of hand. He would be mocked if he rested in inconsequential ways upon the church. And so given verse 6, There is a warning that God would be mocked if we treat the teaching of his word as something small. Now, we could pay a pastor to preach, but not bother to turn up to listen. Or or when we are there, we could could be tuning out and not being active hearers and and not taking it to heart and and push God's word to the periphery of our lives. and, and, And the instructions that end up driving the way that we live do not come from God. But God is not mocked and we will what we sow. You see, the church is, is, is to be a supernatural community. The life that we have together is not a life built on our common interests. Uh, the life we have at Kingfisher, not, Kingfisher is not built on our shared love for school halls and plastic seats. Now, the life we have together is built on Christ. Our love together is built on Christ. That the restoring of the fallen and the carrying of the burdens is built on Christ. And the Spirit brings Christ to us through the word of God. So we sow to the Spirit by submitting diligently and gladly and together to the word of God. So what should the church do? Should restore the fallen. Bear one another's burdens. Prize Bible teaching. And then fourthly, do good. Do good. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was part of the Boys Brigade. Uh, we wore kind of Thunderbird-type uniforms very proudly. And we, we took part in a number of night hikes, which were kind of um, orienteering races in the dark. And we usually did pretty well in these. Um, they wouldn't be too taxing, wouldn't be too difficult, wouldn't be too long, and a little jog round and home in time for tea and cakes, and everything was happy. Uh, but one time, we went into this bigger competition It wasn't like what we had done before, and it was long, and it was hard, and after a number of hours, we were weary, and and we had made barely any progress at all. I think it was probably one of the only times that I really lost it with this group of mates who I was with. I was so angry with them, because they all wanted to give up, and we did give up. We didn't didn't complete the course. We were tired, our feet dragged, and and we started to say, what was the point? And realized there wasn't really a lot of point walking around in the dark. At night time. Uh, verses 9 and 10 are summing things up. You can tell actually that they're summing things up because Paul stops saying you and he says twice, let us. That's how he summed up at the end of chapter 5 as well in the same way, two lots of let us. Uh, and this is how he wraps it up. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I'm not sure Paul is adding a new command here. 
Um, we are to do good. That, that is the love command, really. Love your neighbour as yourself. It's got all kinds of applications, and they're all about doing good. I think what he adds in the conclusion is that this is really hard. Now, life together in the family of the church can be wearisome. And when we are weary, we will feel like giving up. Can you pause on that for a moment? When we are weary, we will feel like giving up. And when Paul speaks about giving up, he speaks about something that will exclude us from reaping a harvest. And the harvest he's just spoken about is the harvest of eternal life. Now, the giving up he speaks about is giving up on the gospel. It's giving up on believing in Christ. It's turning away from the only hope of rescue we have from this present evil age. Giving up on being a Christian. And that is serious. And and, and Paul's saying the reason that some might give up is that they get tired of doing good. Now, the reality of the Christian life is that sometimes we're buzzing, we're driven with great motivation, we ride on a high, and we have these, these sweet times. Most of the time, though, we plod, one foot in front of the other, over and over again, and it can feel like we're walking in the night, and you can't see much, and you soak through with rain, and you're weary to the bone, and the thought begins to grow, what is the point? And the question becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until you find that you've stopped walking. You got weary and you gave up. Now maybe you know what that's like. Now maybe here this morning, outwardly going through the Christian motions, you're here. But inwardly, if you're honest, you got weary and you might have given up. What do these verses say? Let us not become weary why not come on Paul you've got to give us something here it's hard isn't it it's a slog that there is so much struggle and sorrow and sin and 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 honestly there's often so little to kind of give us that nudge forward we 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 give out and we give out and, and there's nothing left to give why should we not be weary well Paul says doesn't he let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. What's he saying there? He's saying this. He's saying the future is wonderfully bright. Saying that there is eternity stretching ahead of us. That these light momentary afflictions are achieving for us a, a weight of glory beyond comparison. Uh, Tim Keller about two factory workers whose job is to fit a kind of widget onto a thingy a hundred times a day over and over again. It's mindless, numbing work. And one of these workers receives the minimum wage, but the other worker is told that at the end of the year they will receive 10 million pounds. And when those workers grow weary, one of them will think about giving up. Which one will it be? Paul says, let us not grow weary in doing good because eternity beckons. Eternity beckons. And and, and practically, he says, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Look, we can't do all good to all people. We can't meet every need among us. 
but we can do what the Lord gives us opportunity for. Now, let, let's not grow weary because we can't do everything. That would be to be like God. God doesn't grow weary because he can do everything. But let's see what the Lord has given us to do. Look at the opportunity he's given us and be content with that. And Paul says, let us, us, and gives the priority, do good especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Some of us will grow weary, will want to give up on Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, would you carry that burden for one another? Would you? Now, when a brother or sister is discouraged, when they, when they drop behind, when, when their attention starts to drift... When they start to get taken up with the things of the world rather than the things of Christ. When they are weary of doing good. Would you come alongside them and bear that burden? And, and if in their wearying they wander into sin. Would you, would you gently seek to restore? If they stop hearing God's word. So that somehow it's just not getting into their heart but it gets stolen or it gets gets choked by the worries of this life and the fleeting pleasures of this world, would you do good to them and help them bring their attention back to Christ? Would you do that for others? Would you let others do that for you? It seems to me that this is what this passage is saying that the church should do. If somebody says, what does the church do? Then we could answer like this, couldn't we? We could say, well, we, we, we try to love each other by gently restoring the fallen. We, we, we try to carry each other's burdens. We come to be taught by the Bible. We seek to keep on doing good and it's hard. And, and we struggle and we get it wrong and we get weary but we're a family of believers and we're, we're helping each other remember that Christ has freed us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He has removed every barrier to our eternal happiness. So we keep trusting him and our future is gloriously bright. And then we might just add, you can have a part in that too. Why don't we pause? Four things on the screen. Which one of these is challenging you today? We'll take a moment and then I'll pray.